You are Professor Emeritus in Sociology at the University of Kent and the author of countless books. I counted 18. Am I right about that? Or are there more that I've forgotten? Yeah, there's about 26. Yeah. Wow. That is amazing. At the moment, you are director of MCC Brussels. And I want to come to all of that. But I, I was interested in starting at the beginning or asking the burning question that you probably get all the time, which is you started out very left wing. And many people say you've traveled to the dark side. You are now very right wing. Um, is that a correct characterization of your political trajectory? Well, the, the way that I look at it is that uh, I've always been driven by very similar impulses. Uh, even as a child growing up in Hungary and uh, seeing my family take part in the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, I always had a very strong sense of injustice and justice. And I always felt the need to, to kind of uh, take a stand and, uh, and fight for what I believed was right. And... Uh, Essentially, that kind of uh, impulse um, has always been a, a very powerful one. To this day, I react quite passionately, quite strongly uh, to things that I think are utterly wrong. And uh, the way that I look at it is that you know I felt uh, when I was becoming a university student, I was a student radical, um, and my friends managed to close down Megill University for about a month, uh, and we did you know, really well in terms of making an impact. I, you know, at the time, being a student radical uh, in the 1960s was in the air. You, know, you, you felt the sense of freedom that anything was possible. And um, I'm one of the few people of that era who doesn't have any regrets. You know, obviously, you did a lot of silly, foolish things at the time, and you saw things in a, sometimes in a fairly uh, limited, distorted way. But that's uh, an experience that you know, has made me what I am, as I did all my experiences. And the way that I look at it is that there were certain dynamic elements within me that are, that are constant. And the way I see it is that the political language that we use today, where we categorize left and right, is really confusing and, and fails to understand that what these concepts meant classically is very different to what left and right means. So, for example, classically, being on the left uh, was about being future-oriented, believing in experimentation, committed to science, committed to freedom and humanism, whereas left, being left today is very much about being obsessed with identity politics. It's really about uh, a kind of very stagnant theory of sustainability where the economy kind of uh, uh, stays still. And the left very rarely has got any relationship to the people, which is something that I always hope to forge and I did forge at times, because you, know, you as an activist want to uh, speak for the people and, and, and be part of the people. Uh, and that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, ideal is still with me today. Uh, I don't see myself as either left or right. I've got a very clear idea of what I am and that's got to do with different dimensions of my experience. So when it comes to family life, when it comes to tradition, when it comes to uh, history, uh, I feel very strongly that these things need to be conserved. So I suppose I would be very conservative when it comes to education in particular, the bringing up of children. When it comes to people's 
lives, individual lives, the choices they make, the, the, the way they express themselves. I take a, a very classically liberal position. I believe in, in, in their right to make choices uh, as long as they're prepared to live with the consequences of those kinds of choices. And when it comes to social and economic matters that affect people's everyday lives, I suppose I take you know, what is almost like a, a classically socialist point of view where I really believe that we have the duty to uh, provide people with the best health care, the best education. We have to uh, ensure that uh, opportunities for everybody are made available. So I'm all of these three different things, and other people have to decide what that is. Maybe they can find a better name than I can. But I think at, at a moment when we're living in such confused political world, it's far better to follow your instincts and who cares where you end up? Uh, you know, and if people want to call me right wing or far right or whatever, uh, they're just showing their political immaturity that they they don't understand the context within which we live today. It's funny that you said that in the past you had seen the left as being kind of pro science, um, but you know they would argue that they are and that the right is not scientific. So I was reading a paper the other day that was talking about, it's actually really amazing to me because any questioning of, you know, gender ideology was lumped in with questioning evolution and all these other things. And, and the, the author called it troll science, that the right doesn't do science. They, they, they um, do pseudoscientific um, counter narratives that is just it's similar to trolling people online, whereas the left is the domain of true science. So is it true that the left has left science behind? Because they claim to be on the side of science when it comes to things like COVID, when it comes to things like climate change um, and, and gender and so on. Well, you know, the left uses the term, uh, not science, but the science. In other words, putting a definitive article before science which gives science this very dogmatic quality that you know, all the questions have been settled. There's no point in debating the climate issue because the science has spoken. It's almost like the Delphi Oracle, you know, the way they talk about the science. And I think it's that kind of very static uh, sort of notion that actually uh, uh, sort of deprives science of its uh, dynamic transformative content that they have in mind. And they use science in a very ideological way as well, where they basically denounce people uh, like myself who maintain that there's actually only two sexes, you know, sort of biological sexes, uh, males and females. They, they think that that's unscientific. Uh, they think that somehow I violated some fundamental principle. But that's just a, a posturing, a, a, an ideological posturing on their part because their commitment to real science, which is open-ended, and ready to yield to new experience, which is, requires debate and discussion, not just simply uh, an, an ideological stance that everything has been settled, is really alien to it at the moment. And in many ways, I, you know, uh, science has got a real problem because it's become so politicized that uh, you've got to be very careful how you approach the subject because at the end of the day, you want to make a distinction between your political ideology or political agenda and uh, Allah signs the freedom to make its own way and regardless of the political outlook of the scientists to essentially you know sort of uh, 
discover uh, the wonderful and important things that need to be discovered. In fact, at the moment, um, there's so much certainty around the science that even when science appears to have moved on from the science, um, people in power, governments have adopted this new term, not misinformation, but malinformation. Are you familiar with that term? I have come across it, yes. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, and I think it's a, it reflects a very important political trend and that hasn't really been picked up because what, hap what has happened is that as science becomes more and more politicized, then what happens is that uh, a politicized version of science begins to be used as a substitute for political decision-making as a way of avoiding debate. Because if you can say that it's the science that has, has decided that this is the way it should be, rather than a politician argue that this is what should be done, then there, you cannot debate the science, whereas you can debate the politician. So politicizing the science basically means that you close down discussion. And this really happened during the COVID experience when you had a, a, this double phenomenon where public health became politicized and at the same time politics became medicalized. So you had this uh, phenomenon running alongside of each other where uh, the health issue was entirely treated from a political standpoint, at the same time, because of the obsessive uh, character of public health, it became the dominant frame through which political debate you know, was taking place. And uh, I think that kind of immature way of, of, of understanding both public health and science does lead to uh, its ultimate corruption. Do you think it's possible to have malinformation, information that's just Maybe it's not wrong, but it's dangerous. It's something that, you know, we shouldn't leave to the masses. Well, I think it is possible to have information uh, that is dangerous, without a doubt. But the way you deal with dangerous information is by having the courage of your conviction and exposing it to be flawed. I mean, this has been a debate that's been going on ever since the 19th century, when... Um, the discussion emerged in, in England in particular, which the discussion was, what do you do when people lie? You know, what do you do when people make things up and circulate that information through newspapers and other media? And a lot of people felt that this was a very good argument for closing down discussion, for censoring malinformation. Whereas some people like J.S. Mill would say, well, actually, the way you have to deal with this is by um, attacking it, debating it, exposing the lies to the public and because that's the only effective way of ensuring that truth will eventually prevail. See, I find these things to be very left-wing, um, having a strong belief in humanity and the human capacity to hear ideas, to reflect on them and to judge how to act. But I I, I find myself increasingly alone in that, in that belief that this is actually, you know, it comes from the Enlightenment, which was a very revolutionary moment in history, and um, that we don't, when we move forward, we don't just throw out the past and the ideas of the past and the, the incredible revolutionary potential of that belief in the human subject. Um, so going back to some of your own political history, have you always had these kinds of ideas or um, did you change um, or did something happen at some point 
where this belief in the human subject in the capacity for human beings to just kind of judge for themselves as a core aspect of progressive politics. Did that wither away at some point? Well, you know, obviously I've changed because any semi-intelligent individual who is as old as I am uh, needs to change. If I hadn't changed, I would be a caricature of myself, which I hope I'm not. And obviously the world has changed quite a bit. But there were certain elements in my politics when I was left-wing, which uh, the left didn't accept, which, which many left-wing people thought that I, was a, I wasn't a genuine article. I wasn't really left-wing. So I'll give you three examples. The first example, I remember, this was in 1969. I was at a party, and a lot of my radical friends were talking about their horrible mothers, their horrible fathers, and how much they hated their family. And I kind of innocently said that actually I love my parents, you know, sort of, uh, you know, they're not, they may not be perfect all the time, but I really love them and uh, I have a very close emotional affinity with my family. And people looked at me as if I was some kind of a pariah because, you know, people in, in their eyes who said they love their family couldn't be a, a genuine left-wing activist, radical. So I had that as a, as a as very important element. The second thing that I had that was very, very strong, and this, this comes from my Hungarian origins and living under Stalinism and being part of the revolution, is I've always been fairly suspicious of the state. I've always been very suspicious of, uh, of being told, you know, sort of, and relying on the state to make my way in the world because, you know, I, had, I felt that, when the state intervenes too much in people's lives, it always has some kind of a disorienting or perverse consequences. So unlike all the left who looked to the state to solve the problems of society, because that was like, you know, the, the, basically the, the, the paradigm that they all kind of ad adopted. I and some of my close friends, we never uh, had these illusions in the state. And thirdly, and this, this was something that uh, probably more than anything else, marked me out <clears throat> in the 1970s <clears throat> as not a genuine left-wing person, had to do with free speech. And that, what happened in the 1970s, I wrote a pamphlet called Under the National Flag. And what the pamphlet was about was criticizing the attempt of the British left to no platform National Front members, this right-wing organization, who they basically called fascists and Nazis. And I argued, I, I think I and my friends were the only people that argued for the right of, of, of the National Front to have their voice heard. Because I tried to explain that if you begin to close down discussion and what we call cancel a particular group uh, because they're fascist, then tomorrow you know, other organizations will get the same kind of treatment. But not only that, the point is, is that if you think that what they're saying is so wrong, let the people hear it and have the courage of your conviction to be able to argue against it. And this caused an outrage. And many people, you know, that's the first time ever I was called a kind of a fascist sympathizer because I argued against it. So there were certain elements in my ideals <clears throat> that are very much uh, what I am today. But obviously I've changed and I, I developed new ideas uh, I realized that I was wrong about certain things, uh, as any human being can be. And uh, hopefully, 
learning from my mistakes has given me greater capacity to uh, understand the world today. And in particular, it, the journey has been wonderful because I can see much clearer uh, both where people who call themselves left-wing and people who call themselves right-wing actually come from and what motivates them and what the issues are that preoccupies them. So on one of these topics that you mentioned, on the idea of the family, I don't know if it's maybe like coming from, I've, I come from an indigenous background mixed with Irish, so I have a humongous family. I've got over 30 first cousins, 40 <laughs> aunts and uncles, you know, a humongous family. And for me, family was always a source of, you know, although we had all sorts of problems, you know, we're indigenous, right? Got all kinds of problems. Um, I found family always to be a source of, of trust and joy and so on, even when bad things happened. Um, but this seems to be something that is quite problematized now. Um, and I wonder, and, and going back to kind of left versus right, it seems like the family has become just straightforwardly a right wing issue, which is quite curious to me that it should be bipartisan in this way, because okay, maybe the left might have some ideas about the family that are a bit different, right? They might emphasize different things. But to think of the family, families in which the vast majority of humanity lives um, could be just a right-wing issue is shocking to me. Um, and I wondered if you could sort of shed some light on, on how that happened. And if, if it's a bad thing, we don't really have any deep debate about families that crosses a political divide. Well, I think the reason why the family it has got such negative connotations uh, today, particularly by people who, who promote identity politics, is due to the fact that uh, somewhere along the line, uh, the ideology developed in the late 60s, which basically said that the personal is political. And when they began to argue that the personal is political, then that gave them the warrant to look into people's private lives. And as they looked into people's private lives, which was principally the family, they invented this idea called the dark side of the family. And according to this kind of idea of the dark side of the family, uh, they basically made this so-called discovery, which suggested that people in a family relationship are brutal, and toxic towards one another, particularly men towards women, but also parents towards children. And therefore, rather than the family being seen as a site of, of loving care and nurturing, it became seen as a kind of a brutal battleground on which violent, violence was endemic. And initially, this was a minority point of view, but gradually from the 1970s onwards, it, it gained so much traction that I remember writing an article on the family in, in uh, the turn of the century and looking at all the books that have been written on it, but mainly by social scientists and struggling to find a single book, not even one book that had something positive to say about the family that basically said, you know, the family is good. Thank God we got a family. It, it looks after people. Instead of uh, saying that, uh, what they were saying was the very opposite, that the family is problematic you know, that, that women need to have their uh, own space separate from the family, that children were at risk. And uh, just today, um, there was a discussion in, in Brussels where I work, in the European Union, where they made this big new uh, initiative 
where basically uh, what they really are arguing is that the aim of the European Union is to ensure that a significant section of young children between the age of zero and three years are, are put into childcare nurseries. And that they hope that in, in about five years time, the percentage of kids that are going to be put in a nursery is going to increase. So you might think, well, that's good. Childcare is not a problem. But what they're really saying is that the European Union trusts the experts that work in nurseries more than mothers and fathers to do the right thing by their kids. Yeah, and of course, full disclosure, I'm a visiting um, a visiting fellow at MCC Brussels, and I've been doing research on this. And this is one of the reports that we have coming out. Is This is precisely the shift that's happened where childcare used to be understood as something that was of benefit to parents. And it's interesting when you look at the, the literature that comes out of the EU, they say things like, uh, well, fathers need to take up more of the childcare and states need to provide childcare to free the woman up to work, right? To work more, um, not to like relax. I don't know. Maybe, maybe a woman might want to work, but that's the main purpose. It's just, it's to work. And then even that, even that over time has gone away. And now the main purpose of childcare is like, is to intervene in the child's life at, a, at an early time to sort of correct the mistakes and stop these kind of sh shifty ideas from being passed from one generation to the next. I wonder, do you have a sense of where, why, why, where's that interest coming from? Why is there so little trust in everyday people to do something like raise children, which people have been doing since there have been humans and even before, <laughs> even before that, since we've been swinging from the trees? I think that uh, the way to understand it is that there are two dominant political uh, sort of uh, elements that uh, dominate the outlook of, of our political establishments or cultural elites. One of them is uh, the politics of identity. And there you have the personal and, and political, which we already discussed. But the other side is a, more of a technocratic imperative towards social engineering. And from the point of view of technocratic expertise, uh, it's, they basically believe that child rearing is a skill. They often talk about parenting skills, as if it's you know, like, like learning to become a mechanic, uh, you know, the skills of being a plumber or an electrician. So from their point of view, parenting is a skill. And the way they see it is that parents are at best you know, sort of uh, hapless amateurs, but at worst, they're complicit in messing up their children. And that ideal has been very strong within the American progressivist tradition, going back to the turn of the 20th century. It's been very, very strong within the technocratic uh, social engineering tradition of social democracy within Europe. It's very powerful in the European Union because it, it, it's, it's the dominant outlook of the, of the Eurocrats who are there. And I think it's this kind of conviction that you that parents cannot be trusted, uh, and that parents are a, a kind of a, an inconvenience at best that you got to put up with, but the faster you get away the kids from their their grasp, and the more you inf, uh, inform them and and socialize them, so that they begin to have ideals that are quite separate to that of their parents. Those sentiments are extremely powerful in school pedagogy and also in, in the uh, industry that looks after uh, nurseries and various other child-rearing enterprises. 
So on that, maybe it's jumping ahead a little bit, but tell me a bit about your work with MCC. So what got you interested in Brussels? You went from Kent in the UK um, to Brussels. What's the story? Well, the story is this. I I mean, I was very happy, you know, sitting in my office writing because I I love writing. It's one of my big loves in life. And uh, it's something that I just really enjoy doing. And I would even probably even do it for free if I had to, because I get a lot of pleasure out of that. But then as I was doing this, as I was writing, uh, um, I became increasingly aware that the world was changing quite rapidly. And it wasn't changing for the good. It was getting worse and worse from a cultural, civilizational point of view. And uh, I know that very often uh, I'm sitting around the breakfast table, talking with my wife, listening to the news. And we kind of looked at each other and, and we said, either we're idiots or what they're saying is idiotic had to be one or the other. And then we, I kind of realized that, that, that the kind of culture war that was being, uh, was being waged everywhere in the world, but it's very, very strong in Europe now. It used to be principally an American and an Anglo-American kind of uh, accomplishment. I felt that it was really quite important that you know, I took a stand and I did something uh, in order to find a narrative uh, that can effectively deal with this. And it just so happened that MCC Brussels, which is a Hungarian-linked organization, was looking for somebody to run their think tank. And it just so happened that uh, I you know, basically said, do you want to do the job? And I said, I would love to come to Brussels to stir things up a little bit and to project a different narrative where we essentially fight for the civilizational values that were essential for the development of Western culture, but not just for Western culture, but for the, for the whole of humanity. What we're doing is with a, a, a really lovely team, we're kind of uh, developing a, a narrative that calls into question things like the impulse of the European Union to basically promote transgender ideology, the uh, attempt by the European Union to promote uh, LGBTQ values to the point at which, that as they put it, they want to queer the world, to go to uh, Brussels and to challenge the narrative that calls into question the legitimacy of the nation, of national borders, that calls into question the legitimacy of all those historical traditions that have been quite important, and in particular, who wants to make us feel ashamed about our past, rather than understanding that the organic connection between where we come from uh, and where we are today is essential if we're going to know where we're going to go in the future. And uh, one of my big battles at the moment is to defend the history of Europe, the historical achievements of Europe. Obviously not uncritically, because obviously there are negative aspects to it, but by and large, the positive legacies of Greece, Rome, Christianity, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, these are all important uh, component parts of our foundation as a civilized world. And I think one of the things that we're doing uh, and is, is to basically uh, stand up for that and promote a an alternative narrative to the one that the EU is projecting. It's very exciting. So why why is that important? Why why is it important? Because I know people will say, oh, Western civilization, culture war, all these things are dog whistles, you know, for nefarious kinds of maybe white supremacy or something like that. Why does it matter? Can we not move forward and 
hear other voices and give other people time? Haven't we heard enough from the West? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very important to move forward. I'm a big believer in uh, being bold, taking a decisive step forwards, uh, being uh, open to new experience and yielding to that experience. You know, we've got a lot, lot to learn yet. We haven't had the final word on most of the issues of our time. But the point is, is that whatever we do, do that's going to be creative, that's going to be exciting, and that's going to matter to the lives of people will only be, be achieved if it's based on a certain foundation. And the foundation that, that is uh, really quite uh, important are inextricably linked to the kind of values and the kind of traditions that grew up. So, for example, uh, what are we going to do you know, with, without Greek philosophy? Because you know, whatever you think of individual Greek philosophers, Plato or Aristotle, and the other individual, it doesn't really matter. The point is that, you know, the Greeks have taught us how to reflect, how to think, how to abstract. They taught us to, you know, understand, you know, the distinction between our humanity, our human, human qualities, and those of other species. So they, they basically provided us with a certain intellectual outlook that has been evolving and developing, and, you know, sometimes in a, in a way that's modified all of the time. And we learned a lot of things from the Romans, from the Renaissance, from all these things we learned quite a lot from. And without these uh, intellectual and moral resources and the values that, it, that emerged, we're left with you know, what I call a year zero history. We, we're left with essentially very, very little. And you'll find that it's interesting because those people that reject that tradition are then confronted with the, with the challenge of you know, what are their values? You know, what are they going to tell their children about what is right and what is wrong? What, you know, what kind of direction are they going to give to the younger generations? And when you look at the values that they put forward, they basically are values that they've invented from thin air. They're what I would call administrative values that were administratively created. So in the European Union, you know, the, the big value which they ripped off from America is diversity. But when you think about it, diversity is not a real value. All that it basically says is that the more, the merrier. Right? Now, now, okay, you might think that it's good to have diverse uh, uh, people, diverse experiences, but that's not a value in, in and of itself, any more than uh, arguing that you need homogeneity, where you don't have diversity, but just one. That's not a value either. Um, inclusion, inclusion to raises the question, inclusion to what, right? And the minute you ask that question, inclusion to what, that's another way of raising the question, well, what is it that we want to be part of? And they can never answer the question, what is it want to be part of? Because they have no sense of a common vision of the world, something that builds real solidarity. And that's why you will find that uh, the values that they put forward are just made up all the time and lead to uh, very often to very negative uh, sort of uh, consequences. So, yeah, I, I think this is crucially important because I want to be in a position where I tell uh, my grandson or, or when I tell my, you know, my, young, my young students, these are the values that made us what we are. And these are values that you need to nourish and develop further as every generation must. But you cannot imagine for one second 
that you can just start from scratch and reinvent all the good things or reinvent, you know, sort of something that isn't so good uh, because that's not going to work. Yeah, we don't make history just from nothing. You know, you make history based on the um, circumstances that are transmitted from the past. Um, <laughs> that's that's what you have to work with. And it seems to me that if you have this kind of idea of the future as a project that humanity is kind of building together, then you're going to meet people where they are, right? Like, it doesn't mean you're going to agree with everybody, but you don't see people as fundamentally the problem, right? It's it's about convincing people and trying to build something and trying to build something that we can agree on and get excited about and want to be included in, you know, in, in some sort of future-oriented project. But if you see people as the problem, values as the problem and the impediment, then that's where your your analysis is focused. That's where your activism is focused. It will be on changing people because they're the thing that are, that's stopping us from moving forward. The future is just, I don't know, something that can be created from thin air. And if we could just fix people, then we would just get there. Um, I don't know. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah. I mean, it, basically what, what you're really saying is that if you have this orientation that, uh, you know, things you know, that there aren't these values that can motivate people, if you have this orientation that we're just inventing things from anew, then what you also very often uh, conclude is that the people don't get it. And, you know, they very often use this very paternalistic uh, ideal that, oh, they just don't get it. And that's both anti-democratic in a sense, because the logic of that is that if they don't get it, it's pointless having elections, it's pointless having public life and pointless having electoral politics. But if they don't get it, then, then also what that does, and this is why in America uh, this concept has really flourished, is this idea that there are people that do get it and, and, and then there are people that don't. So the people that do get it are in America called um, the ones that are on the right side of history. They are aware that they, 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 are, they are what I call awareness raisers they raise the awareness of the unaware. And, you know, they have this kind of contemptuous phrase that they use. It's probably the, 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 woke, the one woke phrase that I hate more than anything. And that's when they tell people like me, you know, sort of uh, go educate yourself. Why don't you edu educate yourself? And when somebody says, why don't you educate yourself? They don't say, Frank, go to a library and read books you know, sort of, and, and have a better grasp of the subtleties of the world. They basically say, when they say, go educate yourself, it, it, that you have to think the way we do. And until you have the same ideas as we have, until you follow us in terms of our outlook on the world, you're going to become unaware, you know, sort of, you're not going to understand who you, your really interests are. And, and that kind of division that's been created uh, is really at the heart of, politics in the modern world, certainly in the West. And that's really at the heart also, obviously, of the culture wars and the conflicts that surrounded between these two kinds of people. Do you think it's also, I have this pet theory that I that a lot of public discourse is being driven by teenagers with anime avatars? <laughs> <laughs> because they're so, they're so rabid online and you don't know 
who you're talking to, you assume, you know, you, you engage in good faith and then this person begins to attack you. And, you know, with me, I've had people sort of at my employer and this sort of thing, trying to get me in trouble and it can be quite scary, but I, I, I realize, and when I'm tempted to kind of be snarky back, I think this is probably like an 18 year old kid, you know? And I wonder if it's just this, is it like youthfulness that we are taking seriously? Because I had a lot, a lot of these ideas that I see coming at me, I recognize myself in them. You know, when I was 19, 20 years old or something like that, and I was an undergraduate in university, you know, I took like, I don't know, three anthropology classes and all of a sudden I was an expert. And I would have said, I would have said, educate yourself, go educate yourself. And what I meant was take anthropology 101, you know, <laughs> be educated like I am. And I just wonder, is it is it this that we're taking too seriously a very kind of youthful um, ignorance or belligerence or even idealism? <laughs> or is it something more nefarious or deeper? I think it's deeper. I think obviously all of us when we're young, you know, can be um, a pain. You know, so all of us can think very highly of ourselves and be very opinionated about the world. All of us can look down upon our elders, our parents think that, oh my God, they don't understand this. They don't know how to fix this. I understand, you know, mobile technology better than they do. So you can have all these views and that's normal and probably it's even healthy when you have that kind of, uh, when young people kick up against uh, the older generation, that's part and parcel of the, the way in which they historically have developed their identity. But it seems to me that although the phenomena you describe exists, these 18-year-olds who are giving you a hard time and have you know, fairly vicious ways of communicating their hatred and their, and their dislike towards you. And it's a very casual hatred as well. It comes very easily for them to hate. They get these sentiments, these emotional reactions from people that are older than them. In other words, they've been educated by our society to react in this kind of way, to, to imagine that if people question, for example, the fact that uh, there's only uh, that there are many, many genders and basically assert the fact that there are, in fact, only two biological sexes, they, they will know straight away that the first word they will throw at you is that you're, you're homophobic. And where do they get this idea that, you know, people like you and me are homophobic just because we're old-fashioned enough to believe that there's only two biological sexes. They get that idea from people that are educated them, some of their teachers. They get their ideas from uh, older people in the media, the so-called influencers. They get that idea from the cultural elites. They get that idea when they watch Netflix and they watch all those, uh, all those movies and TV programs that promote this kind of idea. So I think that the, the problem is much deeper than that because they've been socialized by irresponsible adults who have incited them and indoctrinated them to think in this way. And, and that's why for me, they're the problem rather than the 18 year old kids. Do you know, I actually, I could have time for the argument that there's more than two genders. There are two biological sexes. Um, and then, of course, everyone will say, what about intersex? OK, yes. But for the, va for the vast majority, it is, you know, 
There are two biological sexes. Okay. And that used to be quite un uncontroversial. I mean, I even learned that in sociology 20 years ago. Um, but I could have time for the idea that there are many genders because gender is how we decide to live with each other. Um, but that's not something that can be asserted. That's something that 